Once there was a man who was called the greatest American director who was not a household name. He had a name. It was Howard Hawks. Hawks had read a science fiction novel called No Good for a Corpse. He was so impressed, he told his secretary to call this guy Breckett to help write his latest film. This guy Breckett turned out to be a 40-year-old woman. Her name was Lee Brackett, and she would go on to work on many Hawks films. In 1966, Hawks asked her to turn a novel by Harry Brown into a screenplay. She did and thought it was the best screenplay she had ever written. It was a dark story, well, too dark, so Hawks had her make it fun and light, and that turned out to be a western called El Dorado, the second of three films about a sheriff defending his office against belligerent outlaw elements. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Hello, my name is Jeff Kelly, and welcome to the 10th episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today is the second Monday of the month, and that means I'm going to talk about one of my favorite films. This episode is about the 1966 or 1967 film El Dorado. Apparently, it was first released in Japan in 1966, but wasn't released in the U.S. until June 7, 1967, its release date being delayed due to Steve McQueen's film Nevada Smith. But before we get started with that, let's have a bit of fun. When I was a teenager, the local rock and roll station used to play a game. They would string together little two or three second snippets of songs, like six or seven of them, and it would be up to the listener to guess what those songs were. So I'm going to steal that idea. Here are six sound bites from six films. Can you guess all six films? Duquoin, Illinois. The biggest county fair in the country. It's going to be a bumpy night. Oh, what are you talking about, for Christ's sake? Wait a minute. I'm in a hurry. If you think I'm going to let you... Hello, Eloise. The crab is heading straight for him. We've got to get him out before it's too late. It'll close for another hour or so. It's raining pretty hard. Now, most of these should be pretty easy. You can post your answers on the Celluloid Days Facebook page. Yeah, I finally have a Facebook page. And you get bonus points if you can name the actors. But remember, this is just for fun, fame, and glory. No prizes will be awarded. Now a story. I saw a film as a child. I believe it was at the drive-in with my parents. At least that's the way I remember it. For you younger kids, a drive-in is a place where you would sit in your car and watch a movie on a big screen. Anyway, as an adult, for some reason... One scene from the film stuck in my brain. I just remember bad guys on horses, and one of the good guys jumped on the ground, under the horses, so the animals would have to jump over him. After the shootout was over, somebody asked him why he did that, and he said because a horse will never walk on a man, and men can't shoot straight when a horse is jumping. He's told something to the effect of, I don't think that's true. That was all I remembered. I didn't know who those characters were, who played them, 
what the plot of the movie was, or even the name of the movie. And I have no idea why that one scene stuck in my head, but every now and again, I would think and wonder about it. What was the name of that movie? Now, you need to remember that, until I was about 20 years old, there was no home video. There were no Blu-rays, DVDs, VHS, or beta, no cable, streaming, or on-demand. In most cases, after a film's theater release, it was gone forever, except maybe it was shown on television now and again, and then you had to be available at the right day and time. When home video began, I started watching all those films that I always wanted to see, or hadn't seen in a long time. Eventually, I had a big collection of tapes and laser discs. And every time I watched a Western, I wondered, is this the one? I remember watching The Magnificent Seven, and I hoped, maybe. And then I watched all its sequels, even the one where Lee Van Cleef takes over the lead. But each time I was disappointed. It was about ten years ago I watched El Dorado for the first time since I was a child, and suddenly there's a scene in which a shootout is taking place in the sheriff's office. Sure enough, James Cond jumped on the ground, so all the horses of the bad men would have to jump over him. In one way, I was happy to finally know where this scene came from. But on the other hand, one of the mysteries of my life was a mystery no more. And that, in a way, was a little sad. One mystery solved. Now if I could just figure out the secret of dark matter. El Dorado was a film by Howard Hawks with a screenplay by Lee Breckett. It's loosely based on the book The Stars and Their Courses by Harry Brown. I'll get more into that later. It stars John Wayne and Robert Mitchum with James Caan, Charlene Holt, Ed Asner, Paul Fix, Arthur Honeycutt, Michelle Carey, and Christopher George. The cinematography was by Harold Rosen, the editor John Woodcock, and music Nelson Riddle. Now, of course, there are many comparisons to Rio Bravo, Hawk's film from seven years earlier. Some even call it a remake. And while Rio Bravo is probably a better film, each film has its own completely different tone. Eldorado's combination of humor, plus the chemistry of Wayne and Mitchum, and the fact there are no romances, separate it from Rio Bravo. Not that I have a problem with romances in films, but in Rio Bravo, the 52-year-old John Wayne getting together with the beautiful 28-year-old Angie Dickinson? Come on. But that's the way it was in Hollywood, right? No matter how old the man the love interest had to be under 30. Someday I'll tell you the story of the 1962 film The Road to Hong Kong with the 59-year-old Bing Crosby, 48-year-old Dorothy L'Amour, and the 29-year-old Joan Collins. Anyway, about the comparison between Rio Bravo and El Dorado, director Jonathan Kaplan on Trailers from Hell said he talked to Howard Hawks about the two films. Hawks said he didn't see a problem with remaking his own film, taking a drama and turning it into a comedy. Kaplan also asked Hawks what makes a great movie, and Hawks responded, three great scenes and no bad ones. Lee Brackett, who was a very successful screenwriter and one of the only female screenwriters at the time, wrote a treatment for El Dorado based on Harry Brown's book. She said in an interview with Stephen Swirls a couple of years before her death, I wrote the best script I've ever written, and Howard liked it. The studio liked it. 
Wayne liked it, and I was delighted. We didn't make it, because he decided to go back and do Rio Bravo over again. It could have been called The Son of Rio Bravo Rides Again. I wasn't happy, but I did the best I could to make it a little different. Amazingly enough, very few people, except film buffs, caught the resemblance. I thought, my God, the critics will clobber us because we did this before, practically word for word. The scene where Jimmy Kahn threw himself in front of the horses we had done in Rio Bravo, but it was cut out of the final print because the final print was over length. I said, Howard, you can't do that. Warner Brothers owns it. He said, all right, I'll buy the rights back. So what can you do? The plot to El Dorado was perhaps a bit muddled. The first half takes place in the town of El Dorado when we are introduced to Wayne as Cole Thornton and Mitchum as Sheriff J.P. Hera, who is not yet a drunk. We also meet Charlotte Holt as Maudie and Ed Asner as Bart Jason. Bart Jason is the big, bad rancher who offers Wayne a job, but Wayne, being a good guy shootist, refuses. Besides introducing a few characters, this part basically tells us how Wayne got the bullet lodged in his spine that a local doctor felt he wasn't qualified to remove. Of course, this will come back later in the film. You see, the bullet causes Wayne bouts of temporary paralysis on his right side. The real story begins six months later in a different town. Wayne meets a young man, and I'll let him tell you his name. My name is Alan Bedillion Traherne. Lord Almighty. Yeah. Well, that's why most people call me Mississippi. He's played by James Caan. Wayne also meets a famed gunslinger, Nels McLeod, played by Christopher George. He offers Wayne a job, but being that George is the bad guy, a bad guy with a moral code, by the way, Wayne refuses. But George tells Wayne that he's on his way to El Dorado to work for Ed Asner, and the only law in El Dorado is the drunken sheriff. This concerns Wayne as he knows the drunken sheriff is his friend Robert Mitchum, so he decides to go back. James Kahn wants to go with him, but Wayne refuses his company. Later, however, after Kahn finds Wayne had fallen off his horse because of the bullet in his back, they ride together. Also in the film is the beautiful 23-year-old Michelle Carey who plays Josephine Joey McDonald. She's the one who put the bullet in Wayne's back because Wayne shot her brother. But don't worry, Wayne doesn't hold a grudge and the two become friends. So there's your basic setup. On one side, the rich, bad rancher and his men with the hired gun who thinks he's one of the best. Against Wayne, a drunken sheriff, a young man who can't shoot a gun, and Arthur Honeycutt as Bull Harris, a grisly old bearded man who hangs around the sheriff's office. Oh, and all this trouble is about water rights. Now, in a way, this film is a throwback to the westerns of the 40s and 50s. In fact, that was one of the knocks on the film when it was released that it was outdated. Peter Bogdanovich said of the film, But as usual, the story is simply an excuse to look at some characters that interest Hawks and to play some evocative variations on themes he has been elaborating and deepening for more than 40 years. According to Mitchum, when he asked Hawks what the story was, Hawks replied, no story, just characters. The film is beautifully shot, and that was the work of Hal Rosen. Hal had a 52-year career as a cinematographer during the early and classic periods of Hollywood. 
He worked on films like The Wizard of Oz, The Asphalt Jungle, Singing in the Rain, The Bad Seed, and No Time for Sergeants. He has 154 credits on IMDb. El Dorado was his last film. In fact, he had been retired, but Hawks talked him into coming out of retirement to do this film. Once it was over, he went back into retirement and never worked again. Oh, and for a while, Rosen was married to Gene Harlow, so props there. The screenwriter, Lee Breckett, had quite a career. She worked on films like The Big Sleep, Real Bravo, Real Lobo, The Long Goodbye, and wrote an early draft for Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. And while her draft wasn't used, many of her ideas were in the final script. Breckett, however, was more of a science fiction writer. She wrote a lot of short stories that appeared in magazines like Astounding Science Fiction and Planet Stories. But now I'm going to take a break and turn it over to Nancy Fry to see what she has to say on the subject. And she just might be joined by a special guest. So here we go, Film Chat with the Fries. Hello, everybody. Since this week's movie is a Western... I'm pulling in my other half, Gordon Fry, for a little change in format. Now, don't worry about strapping in for an exhaustive analysis. This is just going to be our observations after watching a classic mid-20th century Western. Now, these were the Westerns made after the golden age of the Gene Autry and Tom Mix picks, but before the resurgence of the Western with movies like Silverado in the late 80s, Westerns have made a big comeback in recent years with gems like Appaloosa and Open Range. Now it seems like everybody's doing them. So, without further ado, it's time for... Film Chat with the Fries. I don't know how we want to do this. We're going to try and keep it from getting too long. I don't know, we could talk about stuff we didn't like and stuff we did like and just kind of use that as a framework. So there were a lot of things that I didn't like about the film mostly because there's not a lot of historical reality behind it. On the other hand, there are some things I really did like about it. One thing I really appreciate about John Wayne and his Westerns compared to virtually all the others is he actually had other ethnicities other than just your standard Anglo-Saxons involved. The actors may have been different from Anglo-Saxons. Anyway, um, he actually had Mexicans. Even as a little kid, I remember knowing that most of the West had been part of Mexico, and gee, Mexican people actually lived there. And I was always appalled at most of these Westerns. But I loved the ones that had Mexican characters, like most John Wayne Westerns. And the my favorite Western TV show was The High Chaparral, because gee, there were Mexicans in there. It was a much more rounded view of, of the Wild West. And so that was one thing I really liked about most of the John Wayne Westerns, especially this one. Uh, you can see it in the clothes. The Mexican characters wear, gee, Mexican clothes. The background characters, anyway. <laughs> right, at least the background characters. Uh, and they have, you know, the very distinctive leather trousers and... Yeah, with the and, cool concho buttons up the outseams. Yeah, exactly. And they have, and they're, you know, have their sombreros and stuff. And they look, gee, they look like Mexicans. Now, never no mind that Virtually all American cowboy gear and technique and all that stuff comes from Mexico. That's been ignored a lot. But anyway, that was something I, I really liked about the movie. Mm -hmm. Right out the gate, I was annoyed because 
here I'm looking at the opening credits and I see, oh, Edith Head did the costumes. Awesome. I love Edith Head. Uh, and then the costumes in this are, they're very good as far as just pure costume. If we're talking like a stage musical it's or something. Stage-y. Yeah, it's very stage musical, theatrical. Doesn't have a whole lot to do with history. I mean, the I, I love the character of Maudie in this, the sort of bad girl. But the first time you see her, she's wearing this appalling sort of mother of kitchen curtains, peasant blouse thing with like 1960s flowers all over it. And it's just like, what is she wearing? It's terrible. Oh, and later she's wearing the same outfit except with reverse yeah, colors. With a, with a good blouse and then mother of kitchen curtain skirt. With the same pattern as the shirt had been, or the blouse had been. So pretty close, like same made, colorway, yeah. Like they made a blouse and skirt in two different materials and swapped. Yeah, and really this is, weird. you know, this is a complaint with a lot of historical movies, whether you're talking a movie about Queen Elizabeth or something else all these movies from the the 40s 50s and 60s that the on the background characters like we've already said the the wardrobe is pretty darn good they're just pulling them out of costume storage and or or like some of the um especially in westerns a lot of these guys background players would have their own wardrobe that they just wore in every western and they they were pretty they were pretty decent but the lead characters are not so hot and you can you can basically tell what decade a movie was made in these periods by the the silhouettes by the female silhouettes by the cut of the men's trousers and uh by especially the women's hairstyles and when you look at this movie right away it's the 1960s there's big helmet hair uh obvious use of hot rollers on the women <laughs> blue eyeshadow bullet boob bras um it's just really bad it's really really bad and it's and it's too bad but you know it's a nitpick so yeah the california's background guys are pretty good the vac like you say the vaqueros yeah the vaqueros they look, they, they look yeah. really really good yeah uh, now they're not riding vaquero saddles but that's a real nitpick they are all good horsemen, though. Now, you're the gun expert, so how are the firearms in this movie? Okay. One of my pet peeves about all these Westerns that was that were made from circa 1920 on uh, is they all use exactly the same guns, whether it's supposed to be in 1850 <laughs> or 1950. Uh, anything in between, they use Model 1873 Colt Single Action Army revolvers, usually with a five-and-a-half-inch barrel, and Model 1892 Winchester carbines. Uh, now, the reason that they used the Colts was because that had been the Army issue revolver during these Indian Wars from 1873 to 92, and then continued on for various reasons I won't get into. All the seven and a half inch barrels were lopped down to five and a half. And anyway, in the 20s, the Army was selling these off as surplus. So they got scooped up by the prop houses. So that's what they issued out. They had hundreds of them and that's what you used uh the 92s i'm really not sure why they used them i guess they're a little easier to deal with they're a whole lot lighter than a 73 but still you know if you want to do 1880 why are you using an 1892 rifle but it's a winchester so i guess it doesn't matter anyway that's one of my pet peeves that they all have the same exact equipment one of the good things about this movie is that one of my favorite character actors in the world, Arthur Honeycutt, he's carrying a Colt revolving rifle model 1855 from the Civil War. Now, he's a Civil War vet. He carries his bugle. and He was with Hood's 
Texas Brigade in uh, uh, during the Civil War, and so he's running around with his bugle and his and his rifle from the war. But they were a very cool rifle, uh, a five-shot big bore cap and ball rifle that did not take cartridges. And you can see when he shoots it, it's got a big gaboom and a lot of smoke and these with this big old boomer. And it's really cool because that's a really unusual piece to show. Yeah. In a you know, in a, any kind of movie. Who knows? Arthur Honeycutt may have owned it and he decided he wanted to use it. I don't know. Uh, you wouldn't be the first uh, Hollywood character actor to bring his own firearms to a to a film. Yes, we've known a few. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but it was really cool. Uh, there's there's other. I remember Arthur Honeycutt and other things carrying really weird guns. So I'm suspecting he owned a lot of really weird, cool things. Or he could be like you when he shows up on the movie set. You, he says, "Ooh, give me that cool thing over there," and the prop or wardrobe person says, "Oh, you know what that is? Why here you go, Mister Honeycutt." <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that could be too. Oh wow, yeah, um, yeah. The the prop wardrobe armors, etc. They are very excited if you actually know what you're talking about. I did see, sadly, as per usual, a lot of buscadero rigs in this. And why don't you explain to our audience what a buscadero rig is? Okay, the standard gunslinger rig that you see gun leather a, holster. Yeah, the gun belt. leather. Um, it's got this. You you have this whole this belt that's cut at a sort of an angle so that it hangs off your hip and has a big, you know, drop coming down with a slot in it. And then you've got this holster hanging off the bottom of this thing. So your gun hangs really low. Really low. A lot like modern, you know, operators like to carry, you know, and the thing is strapped to your leg and whatnot. All that comes from a Model 1912 U.S. Army holster, which is, hmm, that's odd. Yeah. But it, they, <laughs> they didn't do that. This kind of holster rig got developed during the 1950s by this, this Hollywood gun trainer. And, you know, he taught fast draw and all this stuff, and it became really popular and very fashionable to have this gunslinger rig, which didn't exist. John Wayne, bless his heart, actually had a much more normal type gun belt where the holster is just hanging on the belt itself. Where it belongs. Where it belongs. And it's fairly, he, comparatively, he's carrying it fairly high. Now, if you look at photographs, these guys are carrying it at their actual waist. Yeah. Because when, you, as Theodore Roosevelt talked about, when you're on a buck and bronco, things tend to go flying off. Well, we don't want to go on too long talking about this because we're going to take up all of Jeff's time. But, you know, overall, I thought this movie was pretty good. We went crazy and watched uh, Rio Bravo also just because they're so similar. Same screenwriter, same director, what, six years apart? Half the same actors. Yeah, half of the same actors. Um, and there are good points and bad points of each of them. I think I, if you took the good parts of Rio Bravo and mashed them with the good parts of El Dorado, you'd have a really good Western. But, um, you know, they're both really watchable. They're both enjoyable. I'm always impressed by Robert Mitchum and what a solid actor he is. He was he was always very self-deprecating about his acting talent. And, you know, OK, he's but he's good. I really like him. And so and, is Dean Martin. Oh, Dean Martin in, in Rio Bravo, too. Yeah, really solid. Uh, really, He's just a good performer. He's a good entertainer. He was not just a singer. And they're the same movie, just slightly yeah. slight variations on a theme. 
And this is one of James Caan's first big pictures, if not mm-hmm. the first picture for him. And he's solid, although the post-production on El Dorado That's is weird. a little weird. Yeah, his looping sounds like it was done in a different studio and with different equipment and a different sound engineer. And he sounds like he's in a different movie in a closet somewhere. It's very it's kind of jarring. So that's that's weird. But uh, yeah, no, um, I, I've got my gripes. Uh, the music, I think the score is better in Rio Bravo than El Dorado. I think music's definitely better. Yeah. There are times in El Dorado where it feels really television-y. Very. It's like, am I watching Wild Wild West? Where's Robert Conrad? Uh, yeah, bass guitars yeah, and Yeah, the electric like, bass what? and some of the, the music riffs. It just sounds really TV western-y. There are moments when it starts to turn into Mission Mission Impossible music. I'm like, okay, you can definitely again tell this was made in the 60s. Yes. If you compare it with Rio Bravo from the 50s, um, you know, there's there's a big difference in, um, in, the, in the musical score. Rio Bravo definitely has a better score. I know we're not supposed to be comparing the two. That's not what this is about. But, you know, it's hard it's not okay. to. It's okay. Um, my wrap up thing is going to be, I know I whined about the costuming, but I'll say Maudie, who's one of my favorite characters, and I wish she had more screen time in this story. Her wardrobe does get better as you go along in the movie. It's really weird. She starts out in this bizarre Halloween costume. And then as you go along, all of a sudden her wardrobe starts getting more realistic and more of the time period and to the point where she's wearing like a traveling suit and some other thing and there's a there's a scene of her in her under things you know this is for the guys and it's actually not bad stuff her drawers are a little short but she actually looks fairly realistic and she her wrappers and I mean but it's a good cast I know one of the things that you really liked hey they're actually reloading <laughs> yes they actually showed some reloading which is yeah. like huh in the middle of a skirmish they didn't have the bottomless you know mag- not magazines or but uh bottom. yeah but well the yeah. like the winchesters have you know should have like about a that maximum 10 round magazine at best usually it's a little less than that and then it's like a tube magazine, tube magazine that runs along the, the barrel yeah that's yeah. what they, well, they look sort of like a double barrel because there's the tube magazines underneath the the barrel and the revolvers were six shooters thus the name mm-hmm. and usually they only carried five in them for safety so yeah it was nice to see some reloading yeah because otherwise yeah, <laughs> you either run out of ammunition real fast or you've got the magic pistol okay cool well that's our opinion about this movie thanks jeff for letting us take up some of your valuable podcast time to have a little chit chat yep it was fun thanks nancy and gordon and i'll up you one i watched all three of the hawks movies including rio lobo from 1970 and you know what i have an advantage over the both of you i think see i'm naive about the dress and guns of the old west i can just accept it in the film ignorance is bliss but I get it. I've watched a few films with things I know weren't right, and it annoys the heck out of me. But uh. And as for the music, I'm wondering if maybe Hawks knew that he was making a movie that was about 20 years out of date, so an updated musical score was his way to make it more acceptable? I don't know. Who knows? But I'm just guessing. But thanks for both of you. Very interesting. You talked about many things that, well, I didn't know. I'm a little torn when it comes to John Wayne. All that macho fighting, shooting, being a man's man thing can put me off. That being said, at the same time, I like many of his movies. 
I think that if I had never seen a John Wayne film and somebody told me about him and his persona, I probably wouldn't be interested, especially knowing how he supported the Hollywood blacklist. But that's a conversation for another day. There is something about John Wayne's acting that is just so enjoyable. There are a couple films that I really like of his, like The Sons of Katie Elder, Big Jake, True Grit, and The Shootist. Peter Bodanovich said of Wayne in this movie, This is no longer a question of just good acting. Wayne simply is. I've always enjoyed Robert Mitchum. He's just such a great actor. He, in my opinion, was one of the finest actors of his generation. Even playing a drunken sheriff, he somehow seems cool. I think a few of his films will eventually be done on this podcast. And Mitchum wasn't just cool in his films, but his own personal life. There's a famous story about Mitchum when they were making the 1953 film Angel Face for Howard Hughes' RKO. Allegedly, Howard Hughes was mad at Gene Simmons, so he hired Otto Preminger as the director for the film for the sole purpose of torturing her. In the scene where Mitchum was supposed to slap hysterical Simmons, Preminger ordered Mitchum to slap her for real and then began asking for take after take of the slap. At one point, Mitchum walked up to Preminger, slapped him hard in the face and said, Once more? Preminger was so mad he went to Hughes and told Hughes that he wanted Mitchum fired from the movie. Hughes just told him to go back and finish the picture. And Mitchum's character in El Dorado, to me, is what this movie's really about. It's Sheriff J.P. Hera trying to regain his self-respect. There's a great scene early on in the film when he's in his dirty, sweaty clothes and he's humiliated in a bar. And then a few moments later, he's clutching a whiskey bottle on the dirty, dusty night street. And then, of course, soon he's taking a bath and everyone keeps bringing him soap. From what I read, making him more of a comic character was Mitchum's idea to sort of differentiate himself from Dean Martin's performance in Rio Bravo. All the characters are pretty much what you'd expect in a typical American Western, except maybe James Caan. As the young Mississippi, he wears a hat that everybody makes fun of and can't shoot a gun, so he carries a large knife. He adds a lot of humor to the story. Hawks called his character an amateur consorting with professionals. Yet he isn't a buffoon or comic relief or anything. He's still a solid character. There are two women in the film, Michelle Carey, who plays the wild-haired tomboy, She's okay, but there's something a bit awkward about her in this role. I don't think she was quite right for the part. El Dorado, by the way, was the high point of her career. Afterward, she would spend the rest of her time playing guest spots on TV. The other female character is Charlene Holt as Maudie. The beautiful Charlene was 1956 Miss Maryland and a runner-up in the Miss USA pageant. Her acting career never really took off either, who, liked Carrie, did some TV work after this. And her character in El Dorado was sort of fuzzy. I mean, I'm never sure what her relationship is to Wayne and Mitchum. There is a scene in which Wayne knocks on her window, and we can see exactly why she's cast in the film. And the women in this film don't play much of a role. In fact, oddly, there's no romance whatsoever. 
When they first introduced Maudie, I thought maybe there was going to be some sort of love triangle between her, Wayne, and Mitchum, but that doesn't happen. And later I thought there might be some romance between Michelle Carey and James Caan, but that doesn't happen either. And at the end of the film, the women are gone and pretty much forgotten. They were nowhere to be found at the everything's fine and we're all happy now finish. You know, I have to admit, I don't know much about Howard Hawks. Someday on this podcast, I'll do biographies of filmmakers, and I'll learn what I probably should know. But as far as Hawks, what can you say about a man who directed such films as Scarface, Bringing Up Baby, Only Angels Have Wings, His Girl Friday, To Have and Have Not, The Big Sleep, Red River, The Thing from Another World, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Rio Bravo? It's an impressive list. He only did one more film after El Dorado, and that was Rio Lobo in 1970. El Dorado isn't a perfect movie. There are scenes like when John Wayne is exchanged for Ed Asner that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, or maybe is a bit awkward. And then there's the stable at night. Why is it so well lit? I would think a stable in the Old West in the middle of the night would have been pitch black, but hey, that's me. And, of course, there's a scene where James Caan is doing a bad Chinese accent, which, these days, is a little uncomfortable. The biggest mistake in the film, the one that everybody talks about, is that Mitchum keeps switching the side of his body he uses the crutch on. There are different explanations of why this is. The first is Mitchum just forgot. But Mitchum said it was Hawks who told him to switch sides for whatever looked good in the shot they were taking. And although Mitchum was against doing it, he did what the director told him to do. The story goes that while they were watching the dailies, it looked so bad that they had John Wayne make a joke about it at the end of the movie. Where is Morty? Down to her place. That's my crush. Oh, where's the other one? Right over there. It's right under your nose. I can't make up my own mind. You got it under the wrong arm, Cole. Well, how would you know? You've been using it first under one arm and then the other. And then the final scene has both Wayne and Mitchum using crutches on the wrong side as they walk down the street. Sheriff, it looks like you're going to keep your job. Yeah, it'll be a nice quiet town after you leave, Cole. How do you know I'm leaving? We just don't need your kind around here. And even though the movie is a bit uneven and it takes a while to get started, I mean we're almost an hour into it before the real plot gets going, I still enjoy it. But does everyone agree? On Rotten Tomatoes, the critics give El Dorado a perfect 100%. But who cares about the critics? The audience score is 87%, which is still pretty good. Hollis M. gave the film 5 out of 5 stars, and he or she wrote a tightly directed, humorous altogether successful western turned out almost effortlessly it would seem by three old pros john wayne robert mitchum and director howard hawks you could call it of course a john wayne western but el dorado is more than that it's a very good john wayne western not just a simple rehash of rio bravo minus the singing and there weren't too many bad reviews most people seem to like the film, but Sebastian H. only gave it two and a half stars, and he wrote, It just isn't real bravo. 
Well, very true, Sebastian, but it's not Star Wars either, so what's your point? Louis G. said, Westerns were never my thing. Too macho. One star for Hawks, half star for Wayne Mitchum. Louis G., why are you watching and reviewing a film you know is not for you? James H. gave it two and a half stars, and he wrote, I do not know why this film gets constantly high ratings. I found it overlong, with poor sets and costumes, a complete lack of capturing the Old West, and mostly wooden acting. But James Kahn is good. Unconvincing. James, at least you made a point, even though I disagree. I'll respect your opinion. Most of the bad reviews, though, seem to be in the same vein as Sebastian, saying it's not as good as Rio Bravo. I wonder if a lot of people went in expecting to see Rio Bravo. Now, if I had to compare the two movies, I would say Bravo does get going right away, and the story is a little more focused. The Walter Brennan character in Rio Bravo is played by Arthur Honeycutt in El Dorado, and some call that a downgrade, but I like Honeycutt much more. Something about Walter Brennan's voice just gets to me after a while. And then there's James Caan and Robert Mitchum instead of Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson, and I personally think that's an upgrade, though Dean Martin does a pretty good job in Rio Bravo. But of course, Rio Bravo has a young, sexy Angie Dickinson. But look, both movies are enjoyable, each for its own reason. You don't have to like one by hating the other. It's just weird. Now, what did Hawks think about being accused of remaking his own movie? Well, he said, There are always two ways to go. You can go any which way. And we knew that both ways were good. We just turned the whole thing around. We did everything by opposites. I don't think there's anything you can do except opposites. I don't think there's any connection between the two stories. I've heard people say so, but I don't think they've seen both of them. There is a similarity, but it comes from style. It comes from writing. It comes from the fact that it's made in the same part of the country because the costumes are very much the same. We found people liked it, so we didn't mind a bit. Now, from what I read, the reviews for the film at the time were bad, many saying that it's just a remake, and westerns such as El Dorado were out of style. Yet the movie did really well at the box office. In 1970, Hawks, Lee Brackett, and Wayne would make Rio Lobo, again about a sheriff defending his office against outlaws. This one, however, takes place right after the Civil War, and it had Robert Mitchum's son, Christopher, in a lead role. That was Howard Hawks' last movie he ever directed. Bill. Why is Mr. Butter standing like that? Bill, are you okay? What's going on, Joy? bit before I go, and I'll try to keep this short because I know the show ran a little long today. You know, there's one thing I think about whenever I watch a film about the Old West, and that's the smell. I mean, seriously, 
The cleanest of individuals probably bathed once a week at best, most rarely ever. Could you imagine walking into an unventilated saloon? There's no way that Michael J. Fox could have walked into a place like that and not thrown up. I mean, the people of the day were probably used to it, but not people of the 20th century. Anyway, next Monday is the third Monday of the month, and that means I'm going to talk about a film that has been recommended by a listener. Next week, I'm going to talk about 2019's The Dust Walker. Until I watched the trailer, I had no idea what this is or what it was about, so I'll find out as soon as I watch it. It's available on Hulu and Tubi. Tubi is a free channel that has commercials, so you can watch it there. I know it has something to do with aliens crash landing on Earth. Now quickly, I have some exciting news. I now have a Celluloid Days Facebook page, and I'd love you to join it. And also a Twitter account. It's at Celluloid underscore Days. Now you know I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. You can email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. You can also use Facebook and Twitter to get a hold of me. Now, if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good review, at wherever you download this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I'd like to thank Nancy and Gordon Fry for helping out in today's show. Very interesting stuff there. And thanks to everybody who listened. I really appreciate it. I'll be back next week to talk about the Dust Walker. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? Dallas multi Multi-pass. Multi-pass. You know this multi-pass. You're a stupid mimes. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.